0: welcome to theory of indivisibility solutions focused evolutionary analysis of our social economic and political systems delivered to you in short digestible episodes I'm your host dr
1: Sunjata. Jada. what is up
0: everybody Welcome to another episode of Theory of Indivisibility. I want to start this show by giving a huge shout out to Theory of Indivisibility listener Marion. Marion sent me an email letting me know that the previous episode really resonated and that she eagerly listens to each episode when it drops. Much love to you, Marion. That feedback means so much to me. Uh, It really helps me to keep pushing forward and putting the time and necessary energy into creating this podcast. I would love to hear from more of you. So if you have any thoughts, any feedback, any questions, please don't hesitate to send me an email. And that email can be found in the show notes. In the previous episode titled Capitalism Part 2, we discussed some of the current complexities of capitalism in human societies. During today's episode, we're going to discuss how my theory of indivisibility applies to capitalism and some of the ways that many people are choosing to transition away from it. During Season 1 of Theory of Indivisibility, we are exploring the evolutionary origins, current complexities, and how my Theory of Indivisibility applies to the following social systems. Power over, patriarchy, religion, ownership, capitalism, democracy, systemic racism, and education. Season 1 evolves like a book, so for clarity's sake, I suggest starting from Episode 1 if this is your first time listening. A huge shout out to my newest patron, Nancy, and thank you to Marion and Rebecca who increased their monthly gift. Thank you to all of the people who have chosen to support the continued production of this show by becoming a patron. It really, really means a lot to me. If you get value from listening to this podcast and you'd also like to support it becoming more sustainable, please visit patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. My theory of indivisibility has two elements, a declaration and a chart that compares the elements found in social systems that produce division with the elements found in social systems that produce indivisibility. My theory of indivisibility declaration is the following. I truly believe that we as humans have the capacity to live in harmony with nature and one another. I truly believe that we have the capacity to live indivisibly. It is my belief that the true leverage point for living indivisibly is in the recognition that our current social, political, and economic systems are intrinsically designed to produce the perpetual dysfunction that we continue to experience because they are rooted in power over ideals, beliefs, and norms. It is also in the recognition that there is no one to blame. Power over systems were designed and integrated into society approximately 10,000 years ago based on the communication, problem-solving, and governance tools that had evolved up to that point in time. Just like they had no way to drive cars back then because the skill and know-how had not evolved yet, they also had no better way to manage population growth and the perceived scarcity of resources because the skill and know-how had not yet evolved. That is no longer the case. We currently live during an era where many people possess the necessary skills to live indivisibly, and there is an abundance of resources available to help more people obtain them. However, by no fault of their own, most people are still mentally trapped within the indoctrination of power over systems paradigms. In the fifth discipline, Peter Senge states that structures of which we are unaware hold us prisoner. Once we can see them and name them, they no longer have the same hold on us. I created this podcast to help more people learn to see and name the inherent oppressions within social systems rooted in power over and control in the ways that we all perpetuate them. I believe that as more people learn this, they will begin to intentionally make changes in their lives in an effort to organize and live in ways that inherently produce equity, sustainability, and liberation and unconditional love for themselves, the environment and other human beings, end quote. One of the things that makes this podcast unique is that it's based on both theory and practice because I am both an academic and a serial entrepreneur. So I wanted to start out this episode by sharing my journey, my entrepreneurial journey and some of the highlights uh, as well as some of the barriers to my success over the years, and some shady business practices that I encountered, um, you know, through my journey, throughout my journey along each along each step of the journey. So, right around 2003, um, 50 Cent, the rapper, came out with a song. I'm sorry, he came out with an album called "Get Rich or Die Trying." Now, around this time, I had just graduated from undergrad in 2001. And uh, in 2002, I I did a stint in student teaching um, before I was into the into the workforce for the first time after um, graduating from undergrad. And around this time in 2003, I had that very same mindset. Like you couldn't have told me that I was not going to be a millionaire by 30. In fact, a lot of people around me believed me because most of my peers at that time called me old head. Because I, I always had like a sense of maturity uh, and, a, and a sense of level-headed um, posture that they looked up to. And they, if they felt that I was a little more mature and I, I've always also been ambitious and driven and, you know, I, I, I got things done. You know, I had a reputation for doing the things that I said I was going to do. And my first business was actually a clothing store called One Clothing, One Culture. When I was 22 years old, I wrote a business plan, uh, got funding from a a small business loan from a local bank, uh, had family and friends chip in some resources. And uh, along with a partner, we started this this clothing store. And, you know, it was it was it was a success. And in terms of the journey that it takes to, to start up and it was my first startup and I learned a lot through that process. Um, you know, literally as a young, as a young entrepreneur, young man, um, you know, knocking on doors, getting answers to my questions, sitting down with attorneys, uh, purchasing the materials needed to build out the store and hiring contractors, et cetera. I did all that for the first time at the age of 22. And some of the, uh, I can just say, you know, there were a lot of barriers to success and a lot of lessons learned, uh, location, you know, is a major thing. Uh, We went into an area uh, in downtown Wilkes-Barre, PA, where I I attended undergrad and opened the store on the promise that the downtown was coming back. Well, I can tell you that the downtown came back. But many years after uh, we opened our store down there, Uh, in addition to that, you know, I encountered several shady business practices. I would travel up to New York City to purchase clothing from various vendors and but there were various gatekeepers and a lot of the gatekeepers would ask me to pay them in order to get me in front of the decision makers. So they were asking for two thousand dollars, twenty five hundred here and there just to get in front of a decision maker. And, you know, we were we young and we didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, that took a toll having to pay that, you know, those those extra fees and, and just again, just some of the various shady uh, business practices. I also ran into situations where I would go back home to my my city in Philadelphia where I grew up and try to talk to some of the, the store owners who owned clothing stores like mine, which were like urban gear, hip hop gear, sneaker stores, things like that, and try to get some tips. And they didn't want to share it with me. I guess they felt like I was competition. So, you know, I had to go out there and learn these things on my own. And, you know, through that through that process, um, during that process, I also decided to go back to school. To work on my master's degree in social work, so that was going on simultaneously as I was running this clothing store. So fast forward a couple of years later, um, I got introduced to the network marketing industry. Uh, if you're familiar with companies like Amway, Mary Kay, Avon, where people sell products to uh, family and friends or door to door in order to build up, uh, you know, what's called a residual income, that really, really got me excited. I joined a company called ACN that sold long distance telephone service on the promise of getting paid a small percentage every month that people paid their phone bills. And at the time, people still used their regular home phones back in the early 2000s to make long distance calls. And it made sense, you know, to get a small piece of that every time people did that monthly and I could build a team and get a percentage of their um, customers. And it just it made sense that I could get to my goal of being a millionaire by 30 a lot faster in that industry. So I actually left uh the clothing store business, uh transitioned away from that and put all of my energy and time and effort into building this network. And man, again, I learned so much. It was so much fun um traveling the country, meeting people, uh, leading teams of pe- recruiting people and leading teams of other independent salespeople, um, You know, it was it was just a really, really good experience. And I also at that time, I decided to drop out of my my social work program after about a year and a half in the program um, to totally focus on building this business. And I had a level of success. You know, I, again, very young, early 20s. And I built a large team and we had thousands of customers and it was Man, again, such a, a wonderful experience. But what I can share is, as time went along, I started realizing that the uh, the the other independent sales reps, um, which were just regular people who were doing this on the side, part time, is something you start and then eventually you can work up to doing it full time if you want to. And I noticed that um, a lot of people didn't have the same drive or the same resources um, the same access to other people and things like that, that I necessarily had. And it began, it, I, I began to see a lot of burnout from a lot of people. And, um, you know, after, uh, selling people on this idea that they're going to be able to make all this money when they had to make an initial investment to get started in the, in the business as an independent rep, I started to feel guilty about that. The fact that people were ultimately losing money and losing time and not reaching the promise that, you know, um, we kind of put out there. And, you know, there's different schools of thought on that, that, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, there shouldn't be anything I worry about because everyone has the same opportunity that I have. However, you know, just me being, you know, of the mindset that that I am, um, you know, I saw things that just didn't sit right with me in terms of um, what I felt like was like predatory behavior at some point. Because once I realized the numbers and once I realized that um, the statistics in terms of, you know, X amount of people are going to fail. Uh, it no longer felt good to me to know that every time I recruited someone into my in my, my business to, uh, that they were going to fail, and that was just like a part of me being successful is playing those odds. It didn't feel good to me, and I walked away. <laughs> and that's continued to be a theme, um, which is the next industry uh, right around the mid-2000s. Now we're talking about 2005, 2006. The housing market is 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 jumping. Like you know, prices are going through the roof, and you know, you know, um, people are making a lot of money flipping homes, and it, w- it became really popular. All the, a bunch of TV shows about flipping homes and uh, buying real estate, and the prices continue to go up, and people making a lot of money doing that. So I shifted my focus over to the real estate industry, and primarily in the mortgage business initially, um, selling mortgages because I had friends who were selling mortgages and making really, really good money. And I'm talking, you know, 10, dollars $20,000 a month. So I said, there you go. That's what I need to do to reach my goal of becoming a millionaire by 30. Now, in the meantime, I'm still in the background of all of this. I'm still mentoring young people. Um, I am um, being a big brother, mentor, uh, volunteering for summer camps and different things like that. Uh, because I've always had a heart for uh, inner cities and and youth and children. And so I continue to do that type of work as well. And I got into the mortgage industry and like everything else I've done, I had initial, you know, success. And ultimately I began to see some of the shady practices that would ultimately lead to the housing market crash. A few years later, I saw some of my colleagues Uh, putting people into, if some of you are old enough to remember, adjustable rate mortgages, where people would start out with really low payments and then their payments would balloon to the point where ultimately a lot of people weren't able to make those payments. And that's what spurred the uh, foreclosure crisis that spurred the housing crash. Well, I had colleagues that not only were they doing it, but there was like, it was pressure from management to make to, to hit numbers in terms of sales goals and things like that and the amount of money um, and commissions that were being made. And you can make more money if you put someone into a riskier product. And then when you sold the subprime loans that were risky, um, you know, all the, the things that if you were around in 2008, if you heard all the details about why the housing market crashed, like I witnessed that firsthand at my job. And I personally was not willing to do any of those things to make money. And when I saw uh, what was going on, I, again, I walked away. I could no longer, my conscience would not allow me to be a part of that. And so from there, I got into real estate investing. I moved from Pennsylvania down to Atlanta and uh, got into real estate investing in 2007, right before the housing market crashed. And I purchased a home for to live in with my uh, now ex-wife, purchased a rental property as well as invested in some commercial uh, real estate uh, projects. And then the market crashed and I, I, uh, I lost a lot of money. I lost property. I lost a lot of money. And that's when I began teaching for the first time in 2008 when the housing market crashed. Um, And that's when I went back to school and started working on my master's, finishing up my master's, but not in social work at this time, but in education. And then ultimately, I went to go get my doctorate while I was teaching. Kind of licked my wounds for a few years before I got back into the business world. Um, You know, while I was teaching, I started a nonprofit organization and we started um, an after school program, a youth leadership program and did a lot of amazing work. Um, in 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 that community uh, in East Point, uh, right outside Atlanta. So, you know, while doing that work, once again, when I was teaching, I began to uh, recognize some things that didn't sit well with me, and eventually, I left teaching and started working as a real estate agent. And while I was working as a real estate agent, another light bulb went off, really the first kind of light bulb, because everything else I had done was more like you know working in specific industries, business work in specific uh, industries. Well, I had an idea for a mobile app in 2014, and dove in with both feet, learning the mobile app business, how to get an app developed, how to be a CEO of a tech startup, And invested a lot of time, dumped all of my savings that I had earned uh, while teaching for five years. All of my retirement, I dumped into getting this mobile app built. And, you know, again, a lot of lessons learned, um, a lot of barriers to success. You know, there were certain uh, engineers, uh, mobile app engineers uh, that, that drank this of money while they were building the app, ultimately to find out that they couldn't complete it. Um man some hard lessons learned um trying to get that off the ground and eventually we got the app onto the market um it did not um we ran out of money so we couldn't continue to iterate and continue to build it and what i later learned you know just the type of money that you need to you know get a tech startup off the ground you literally need hundreds of thousands of dollars before you even know if it's a viable you know, product. And it takes a lot of investment. And in from family and friends, 90% of the time, most tech startups start up with their own savings and, and money from family and friends to get them into the hundreds of thousands. And I personally didn't have that type of capital myself and was not able to raise that type of capital from family and friends because I just didn't have access to those to people with that type of disposable income. So again, lessons learned. Uh, went for it, hit some some barriers to success, um, ran into some some people who weren't who were shady. And, you know, we lost a little money along the way. Um, And that, you know, that was another, um, you know, uh, part of my journey. So another uh, and the final thing I share with you all that I did was Forex, foreign exchange. And again, similar story. I got into it. A lot of people still to this day, I know some folks who've had success with foreign exchange. Uh, I personally, it just didn't work out for me. Um, And then also I I trusted in someone um, to do some investing for me and lost $5,000, you know, from this person. um, And I'll spare you all the details. But what I really wanted to do is just kind of give you all an idea of kind of the theme of my life in terms of, um being really really ambitious and going after my goals and trying to get at different verticals and different in- industries and ultimately each time um you know ambition wasn't a indicator of true long-term success uh because there were always risks like major major risks there were always barriers and then there was always shady business practices uh that I ran into for other people who were trying to come up per se and You know, the thing that stands out to me the most about my experiences in business is the opportunity costs, Uh, meaning the tangible and intangible things that I lost pursuing my dream of becoming a millionaire. And I think about the time that I lost that I could have spent cultivating deeper bonds with family and friends. I think about the money I lost personally and the money lost by those who invested in my ventures. The time I lost that I could have invested in my mental and physical well-being. And lastly, I think about the time I lost that I could have used to cultivate my innate gifts and use them to to fulfill my purpose on this earth. Because I guarantee you that my purpose is more than just becoming a millionaire. So I began to shift away from the get rich or die trying mindset after I learned about and began to immerse myself into systems thinking. For the first time in my life, I began to connect the dots to the to the patterns in society that serve to create and maintain the haves and the have-nots and the us versus them, the societal scripts that play out in our lives over and over and over and over. I also began to see that there was a whole, like a whole lot of um, elements in industries where people literally make money off of other people's failures. So it was around 2015, like in the last five years, that I've transitioned my entrepreneurial spirit into what I'll call next systems work. This work includes my anti-oppression activism like this podcast and the things that I post on social media. It also includes unschooling organizing that I do and the authentic dialogue trainings and consulting that I do. At the beginning of 2020, I started working as a real estate agent again in an effort to increase my income Prior to this year, I primarily drove for Uber for a few years to preserve my mental energy for the next systems work that I was doing. And my goal is for one day for this work to sustain me. Um, but while I was driving Uber, the beautiful thing about that was it didn't take any brain power. So I was literally able to, to invest a lot of time into my anti oppression work doing the research for what became this podcast it literally took me several months to research the fundamental um foundational science that supports my theory uh, a lot of the the research that I shared in the first few episodes um it took me several months to to research the foundational um you know info and I literally uh you know did that for several months in 2018 I believe so at this stage in my journey I'm focused on divesting from capitalism as much as possible. And based on my journey and the knowledge that I've gained about its negative impacts on both social and environmental sustainability, I've come to see the system of capitalism as inhumane. I want to take a moment to share with you how I take this theory of indivisibility work into the world. At the heart of my theory is the belief that we have the capacity to learn new skills. If we want to live indivisibly, We have to learn how to communicate, resolve conflict, and govern our individual relationships, families, communities, and organizations in ways that reject power and privilege and embrace equity and collaboration. For the past five years now, I've been facilitating trainings on a skill designed to do just that, called Authentic Dialogue. Authentic Dialogue is about shared inquiry, a way of thinking and reflecting, It's an exchange where people think together and discover something new. It is the seeking of greater truth, a shared truth that results from a deeper understanding of one another. I have facilitated both individual sessions for two people and group sessions for organizations and companies. I also created an online training titled Create Healthy Personal Relationships and Thriving Organizational Culture with Authentic Dialogue a three-step process for collaborative conflict resolution that you can access for free at my website under Courses. Visit igotogrow.com, that's I-G-O-T-O-G-R-O-W.com, and click Book Me to view a list of facilitation topics, and please reach out to me if I can be of service to your family or organization. So let's discuss some alternatives to capitalism that people have created. Alternatives that are rooted in systems of power with and collaboration instead of power over and control. So let's start with the circular economy. Capitalism is a part of the make take waste linear economy where we take resources from the ground to make products. We use them and when we no longer want them, we throw them away. A circular economy is based on the principles of designing out waste and pollution, keeping products and materials in use, and regenerating natural systems. The circular economy is a new way to design, make, and use things within planetary boundaries. Educator, sociologist, and sustainability provocateur Leila Akaraglu states the following: The future is circular. Not just in the wider economy, but also in our daily lives. We can no longer avoid the reality that our planet is in need of better care. The linear economy has helped us advance to this incredible point in time, but the advancement has come at major cost to the ecological systems that sustain life on Earth, which in turn affects our health and quality of life as we battle climate change, air pollution, global pandemics, and loss of biodiversity. These issues are all interconnected, and until we change the way we do things, we will continue to be the victims of our own poor decisions. The circular economy is seeking to remedy this through shifts in the way we arrange society, the way we produce goods and services, and the way we all consume, in order to ultimately design the kind of future we want to live in, one that is equitable, sustainable, and regenerative by design. In that same article, Layla lists nine circular economy business models that are underway and will become more prevalent in the near future. The fundamental shift is in how we design goods to flow through the economy and the responsibility that producers take of their goods, enabling customers to return, reuse or repair to ensure that value is continually increased. I discovered a circular economy company here in Atlanta called Lehigh Technologies in an article about 11 companies leading the way in the circular economy movement. The Atlanta firm turns old tires and other rubber waste into something called micronized rubber powder, which can then be used in a wide variety of applications from tires to plastics, asphalt and construction material. 500 million new tires have been made using its products which has earned them recognition and several awards. I see so many possible benefits to this transition because many of the principles mirror the principles needed to also end the pollution that is poverty, homelessness, and many other socioeconomic ills that our current capitalistic linear economy contributes to producing. The circular economy is picking up steam worldwide, and I believe that it's a necessary stepping stone. However, I don't see it as a full on solution to all of the oppressions found within capitalism because it's still invested in the creation of goods for profit instead of only producing goods based on need. I believe that a needs based economy that doesn't force companies to compete and earn profits to survive would drastically decrease our consumption of natural resources as well as reduce the amount of time that people would have to work therefore liberating us to invest more time into activities that improve our mental and physical well-being. I believe that the economic system that has the DNA of indivisibility and best aligns with my theory of indivisibility declaration is the gift economy. A gift economy or gift culture is a mode of exchange where valuables are not traded or sold But rather given without an explicit agreement for immediate or future rewards. This contrasts with a barter economy or a market economy where goods and services are primarily explicitly exchanged for value received. In Charles Eisenstein's book, Sacred Economics, he traces the history of money from ancient gift economies to modern capitalism, revealing how the money system has contributed to alienation, competition, and scarcity destroyed communities, and necessitated endless growth. He suggests a gift economy needs these four qualities. One, over time, giving and receiving must be in balance. Two, the source of the gift is to be acknowledged. Three, gifts circulate rather than accumulate. Four, gifts flow towards the greatest need. In the gift economy culture, a sustainable sense of success is taking pride in the value of our contributions to others rather than taking pride in the value of our possessions. In an article that I really, really enjoyed titled How to Run a Business in the Gift Economy, Marie Goodwin adds the following. The essential idea is that when you have enough of a surplus of something, you give away what you can to friends and neighbors. With everyone practicing this type of exchange, A web of connection is forged. In this way, people get their needs for food, water, shelter, clothing, and luxuries met. The more generous you are, the more you are held in esteem by your community. Your community esteem matters because in times of crisis, that web then supports you in turn. Your generosity is your wealth and your security. Receiving gifts from others acknowledges that you wish to be in relationship with them and that you will be there when they need you. It is a very beautiful way to live. End quote. Marie goes on to describe the gift economy in a business context as follows. When you work in the gift, what you are doing is asking the receiver to decide on their own level of gratitude rather than you, the seller or creator, dictating it for them by attaching a price to the transaction. You are also asking them to choose the timing of the return gift. The idea that gratitude is created in a business exchange is a novel way to view buying and selling, but it is the very crux of gift economics, End quote. So what are some examples of the gift economy? Some very simple examples that I'm sure most of us have experienced are things like potlucks, clothing exchanges, or doing favors for family, friends, and even strangers. To go beyond that, an example in my own life is that I offer a pay what you can or pay what you want um, payment option in my authentic dialogue consulting and mediation work, as well as my unschooling consulting and online trainings. In addition to that, Patreon is also an example of this, where you, the listeners, can determine if you'd like to gift me money for the value you get from listening to this podcast in exchange for the time I invest in researching writing, producing, and presenting it. The largest and most ambitious example of a gift economy that I'm aware of is a city in India called Oroville that has thrived for over 50 years without religion, government, or money. So Oroville is an international city in South India founded in 1968. Currently, it has 2,800 citizens from 54 countries, with the capacity to grow to 50,000 citizens. Oroville is a collective experiment in human unity based on the worldview of Indian yogi Sri Aurobindo. The idea is if people from all cultures and castes can learn to love each other in Oroville, maybe the rest of the world can follow suit. The township was created with support from the Indian government, UNESCO, and well-wishers around the world, but is becoming more and more self-sufficient over time. Think about how much food, clothing, and other things that we throw away and waste that we could possibly gift to others if we were more interconnected within our neighborhoods. Of course, these aren't new concepts. Our grandparents and previous generations grew up this way. These are concepts that the forces of capitalism have destroyed and concepts that I'm happy to say that more and more people are actively working to restore. Theory of Indivisibility is written, produced, and edited by me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform and share it with friends on social media. It really, really helps a lot. It takes 20 to 30 hours of research, writing, producing, and editing to complete each show. So if you like what you hear, you can show your support in helping to make the show more sustainable by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Indivisible. That is also where you'll find show notes and resources for each episode. Literally every name, every article I referenced, um, every resource that you heard me talk about in the show, you can find links to those things in the show notes thanks again for listening and until next time I love y'all peace
1: Open your a second listen to the words that I said so can you feel it lose focus you start to see the vibration in every nation check your foundation a matter of energy got me circling for the world around me stand strong holding the position not be long finish clearing the past and then you move on to a new way to grow your and the running so fast, but will I slow down the wheels and the bus go round around Sitting thinking how I'm living what the longer now I'm coming to a point where I'm bridging the gap of record Living with the interpersonal ethic emerging to another level with my culture Open your mind, vision, no time, open your mind in this. New vision, no time, open your mind to this, new vision, no time, open your mind to this, new vision, no time, open your mind in this. New vision, no time. Open your mind to this.
0: theme song new vision is performed by achilles the cosmonaut find more from achilles the cosmonaut on your favorite music streaming app